We each hold a unique place in this world, complete with our own dreams, culture, and perspective. It is the individual stories of those I meet along my journey that shape the way I see the world. I'm so excited to share these stories with you, and I hope they allow you to fall in love with humanity as much as they have for me. Welcome to This World My View. I'm your host, Liana. Today, I want to introduce you to Casey. Casey has graciously agreed to sit down and just share some of her time in a conversation with me. Um, We met through her partner, Johannes, that I used to train with, and um, she is a professor at Westchester in social work, just active, awesome person in her community, very caring heart, and um, has uh, two beautiful girls and uh, two beautiful dogs that are just hanging out with us today. So Casey, thank you for your time, for sitting down with me, and for being willing to have this conversation. Sure. (laughs) So I have a series of questions I work through with all of my guests. They're all designed at getting to know you, your perspective, who you are. There's no wrong answers because it's you. So answer as you feel comfortable and as you feel led. So we'll jump right in. The first one is, who do you define yourself as? Hmm. This one's really interesting because I think a lot of how I define myself might vary depending on the context. So which piece of my identity kind of feels more important in different contexts. So, I, you know, I'm a cisgender woman, identify as white, uh, as Jewish to some extent. I was raised Jewish. I'm a a mother, I'm a social worker, a professor, um, an athlete, a former Muay Thai fighter, um, and a um, prison abolitionist. I love how complete that is, that there's no one thing that defines who you are, but it's I am the sum of all of these parts, Mm. and I've done all of these things, and these all make up who I am, but your identity isn't wrapped up in one accomplishment that you have or role you have in your life. Yeah, yeah. I think I also have been centering more um, of my mental health diagnoses and kind of who I am. Um, I'm somebody with um, major depressive disorder and general anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder. And I've been very lucky to kind of have a lot of my conditions managed through therapy and meds, but really throughout a lot of my life that they played a huge role in my life. And as a mental health researcher, I think it's really important um, to also like self-identify our lived experiences to push back on the stigma that's associated with mental illnesses. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Because people are so quick to look at somebody and say, oh, that's who you are. Mm. Or this is, I hear this about you. So now I'm putting you in this box. Mm. And you beautifully described who you are and then said, also, this is a part of me, but it's not who I am. Yeah. And I think that's so important for anyone listening to just to just hear that because so many people struggle with mental illness or battle with them and and live with them healthily mm. too. Yeah. I think that's the more important thing that's not often heard. Mm. So thanks for sharing that. Appreciate it. Uh, second one is, what is your favorite food? Oh, <laughs> I love all things sweet. Mm. So ice creams, and cakes, cookies. It's the um, sugar and fat combination <laughs> that really does it for me. So like any of those. That's awesome. Yeah. Those are the ones that were always like, these are what I want. These are what I need to avoid. But <laughs> If I could do it in moderation, it would yeah. be better. <laughs> yeah, moderation the fun that? <laughs> does not define my life. Yeah. <laughs> Why start now? <laughs> yeah. Are you reading anything right now? 
Oh, I should be. I'm trying to get rid of the shoulds, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I have like a couple of different books that I've started and I have goals to read over this spring break, but I can't identify anything that I'm actively reading right now. <laughs> That's fair. And as a professor, you're constantly in a book of some sort, writing yeah, of some sort, doing yeah. something. So I feel like it's always a little different when that's like part of your studies or your job. But yes, like, yes, exactly. So it's hard to like balance out. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I think, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of like productivity and how much that's like driven my life and how even in my rest or like free time, I feel like I need to do something that's like productive or contributing to my career. So in the pushback of that, I think I'm always struggling with like if this is my free time, even though it's kind of a book of interest, if it's also for my career, am I like resistant to to reading and instead I want to do like Netflix or something. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, for sure. It's something that like is allows our brain to like disengage. And when it's like similar to what our work looks like, it's like, okay, we'll do that later. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with Netflix (laughs) for sure. What would you say is your greatest fear? I think for a long time it was my parents' death. I think death and dying, which Mm -hmm. is like, feels like it would be, I don't know. I don't know that we, talk about that enough I um Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about the other day because a student of mine was um taking a class on like loss and bereavement and was talking about just like the what it's like to have dignity in death Mm -hmm. and like have someone make sure if you're in diapers that you're not sitting in urine for too long or so I think like like death and losing people that are close to me, but also like feeling helpless. I mm-hmm. think that's really scary mm-hmm. to me and being like fully dependent on other people, uh, especially as somebody with an anxiety disorder, I like to have like a lot of control in my life. And so I think that scares me as you age, you're more likely to be in different circumstances where you have a lot less control over, you know, basic things like when you get to take a shower. Mm. Yeah, and you're right. It's it's a less common topic. I think it's one that most of us are like, let's avoid. We know we're going to face it. We know it's going to come, but the dwelling on it isn't often yeah. something we want to do. Yeah. But yeah, I can I can resonate with that. The loss and and the loss of ability to control basic needs. Yeah. yeah. What would you say that you value the most? I think I value um appreciation. I think that's mm-hmm. For me the most important thing is like to be constantly like recognizing efforts in other people or that they recognize things like small things that that I do trying to have like a greater appreciation in my day-to-day of things that I love and really enjoy like I'm trying um, like so I have two kids that are two and four and and it can be a really intense tough age but I love like cuddling with them Mm. so Johannes does not love this but I sleep (laughs) in bed with the two of them at night because I just love to cuddle with them Mm. and so especially as we're going to bed like my two-year-old will like grab my face and like put my face between her hands and she'll be like I love you mommy and so I just really try to like appreciate and like live in these moments that seems very worth appreciating yeah yeah and they are so precious they're so cute and they're getting so big yeah yeah so yeah the time is the time when she's tiny and little and puts your hand between her face and holds you and just says i love you mommy like hopefully that always happens when would you say was the last time you felt joy 
yeah, I guess there's overlap in that, right? Every <laughs> night when they do that, yeah. is, I feel a lot of joy. Um, uh, part of this week, talking about Netflix, I was uh, I've been catching up on How to Get Away with Murder because I forgot that I haven't. Um, I forgot that I never saw the end of that, so I've been watching <laughs> that, and it's like giving me intense amounts of joy. I just love all of the characters in it and just the escape from my own reality and that like I can do other stuff I do laundry other things and everything's like so much fun because I'm watching how to get away with murder while I'm <laughs> doing it I love that the multitasking and the the dumping of joy where yeah. we're getting daily household chores done is great that's awesome <laughs> when would you say was the last time you were afraid and why yeah this is a hard one I mean, yeah because I think I'm afraid a lot I, yeah, I guess one recent instance is like, I am somebody who's been very athletic throughout my life and I've been really lucky never have like major surgeries or like, but recently I keep getting injured over and over again. I've been doing CrossFit and I keep trying to be like so smart about how I do things. Actually, whether it's CrossFit or running and I like, tr I'm trying like everything I can and I still keep getting injured so there's like different moves like lifting or other things where I'm just like fuck no matter you know I'm trying to be so smart and yet I keep getting injured so there's just been a few times like before workouts I think it's like a mix of feelings but part of it is this fear of like I just want to like have a good long-term quality of life and I'm so mm -hmm. afraid of this consistent injuring of myself mm -hmm. it's really hard for I mean I can relate to that I've, I've had some major injuries and like for those of us that are active and like to keep going like the thought of not being able to do that is like horrible and then when you go through those injuries you're like no 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 no, not yet not yet I'm still young I'm, we're not yeah. we're not ready for that yet yeah so well here's to those subsiding and yeah I just started PT this week okay. I'm feeling good about good getting a better handle on <laughs> nice. like how to um balance mm -hmm. out some structural issues in my movements that will hopefully reduce my injuries yeah all right well here's to that would you say that there is a moment in your life that changed you or taught you something oof so many moments I think my kids are constantly teaching me that I'm like not as patient of a person as I thought that I was like prior to having kids like I was a social worker and I've gotten feedback from people about being really patient I've just realized like kids just really try my patience in a way that has been shocking to me and and frustrating to see like how little patience I have yeah I don't know. I think having kids teaches you a lot about yourself. That, yeah. Like you just don't know how you'll be in it mm -hmm. until it happens. Yeah. And you being a very patient person doesn't change because you have children. But it's funny because it's like kids are, especially young ages, are 24-7. So it's like patience, they say, is the, you know, like the ability to wait, the ability to like endure through something. But that something doesn't end when they're that age. So it's not oh. even a matter of patience anymore. It's just like endurance, I feel like. It, yeah. it shifts. It's, it yeah. shifts for sure. A lot of times, though, if I can, like I know how I have to be with them and I have to joke. And it's, you know, I, I think a lot of parents deal with this, but it's like when you're under a time crunch and you need and then they're like running away and they think that's funny to like not put their underwear on and you know 
and and you know that if you could just like play it out you could go along with things like you can make it work but it's so hard even knowing that i just want to like yell Mm -hmm. um because it's it's frustrating it just takes so much work to like be the parent that i want to be yeah and i i just like so appreciate your honesty in that because i think it's something especially for women that is so often put on us that we need to never vocalize that Mm. or that we need to vocalize that we just enjoy even in those moments and it's like no we're human and this is this is stressful yeah we can enjoy certain moments but there's others where it's like practically speaking we just need to get out the door right now and you need to stop putting your underwear on your head or whatever it is that you're doing but yeah yeah so i just so appreciate your your honesty and the truth of how most of us feel as parents and as women yeah um, in general just patience is is a little pressed sometimes with little kids for sure what is something you are looking forward to i have recently gotten connected to this woman at the university of pittsburgh who identifies as someone with a psychotic disorder and has really gotten me thinking more about the like carceral aspects of our mental health system because I think I've been focused more recently on the harms that have come about through like our criminal legal system because that is part of my what my research has been on but it's just been in the news and the media for the last few years so much but and oftentimes we we had there's this alternative I think especially in more progressive circles of like oh you know like we have to get police out of certain situations and like have more social workers there. And actually, I think this is, I, I, it's not even just progressive circles. Like I, you know, I've done research on police and police don't want to be involved in things that are more of a, what we see as like a social service issue. But I think lately I've been thinking a lot more about the ways in which people in the mental health system can also be like super harmful. So I'm really excited to work more more with this woman, Nev Jones, um, in trying to write and push people to to think more critically about this turn from moving away from work with police to really, um, as social workers, like being more self-critical around the ways that we ourselves enact social control, that we restrict the decisions that people make, and and to think more about how you know, as social workers, we have this value around like meeting people where they are and seeing themselves as experts in their own lives. And I don't know that we always live those out in our practice. Um, mm-hmm. I think especially when things like liability or, you know, mm-hmm. concern about like, or just like ultimate like overwhelm if somebody for example is talking about suicide i think sometimes those values around like what people say they want and need go out the window and so i'm like just super excited to have connected with nev and to be doing more writing and talking on being critical of mental health um yeah yeah that's awesome i'm excited to hear about more what you learn and research and work you guys are doing that's that's awesome on the other end of that, what is something you wish was over already or maybe didn't exist in the world today? Whew. <laughs> She's like, give me an hour. <laughs> I know. You know, I I guess there's like so many things that are like the, the obvious answer. Probably poverty is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. I have this like quote that in my emails that says that poverty is the worst form of violence and I really believe that I think so many of our um, 
social problems really come back to issues of poverty and like people not being able to meet their basic needs. Um, and I think that needs to be addressed globally, but even like <clears throat> within the US, within Philadelphia, I mean, nobody, it just doesn't, like nobody should like not be able to get enough nutrition in their body. Like nobody should have to like live on the streets if they don't want to. Um, so I think, that, I don't know, there's, there's so many, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so many social issues <laughs> that I think a lot about um, as a social worker, but I guess poverty would be mm-hmm. the number one thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely something that, you know, basic human needs to have them met would be. Cool. Yeah. And it just feels silly that we don't, cause I think we could. And mm-hmm. y- y- my partner, Johannes always says I'm like, I don't know, Pollyannish or naive, but I guess I, I always think about like, we're, we're in this together. And like, if we looked communally at the resources we have, there's like no reason why people within our society, like shouldn't have just their basic needs met. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like sickening to me. I don't think even, you know, I, I can appreciate and, and be on board with what you're saying so much. And I think so many people listening would, would say the same thing, but it's like in reality and practicality, it's like, how do we play that out? How do we live that out? What do we, what action steps are we willing to take? Where does our own fear come into place? And uh, so I, I just appreciate you bringing that topic up and, and bringing just a, a little bit more awareness to that too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. That is the, the bottom line, like that most people I think would agree that people should have their basic needs met. And yet, particularly in the U.S., I think there's this idea like that you have to like earn things or put in a certain amount of work. And there would be concerns about people like gaming systems and Mm -hmm. like then some people would work harder than others. And then other people could like take advantage of that. Um, And I just think like for me, the the if people take advantage, like that trade-off is worth it to have everybody Mm -hmm. still get their basic needs met. You know, I was um, at a playground with my mom the other day and, you know, certainly not all playgrounds are free, but like playgrounds in general are free. And I was thinking about like how there's so many things that are like freely available that if we suddenly had to like charge for because we didn't think that there should be things that were like public goods like how bizarre that would be to people and yet there are other things Mm. that seem like of course we should pay like public transportation like we could just make public transportation free like right like why couldn't we just say all right to like get around the city like the city provides buses and trains and um you know I, I think sometimes you know so certainly that would that would cost money and I think you know especially yeah I, and I don't I don't think that any of these major changes would be straightforward but I mm. also think on both sides people one forget how much that we do already kind of like commonly pay for that is available that we just take for granted but then to like don't think critically about the fact that actually there could be a lot of things that are free and like why is it that we think that people should why should they be commodified like why should we have to pay for things for example like buses it's it's interesting to me because i don't think i've ever thought of it even for myself in those terms of like oh yeah we don't pay for playgrounds and it's like who 
somewhere someone decided these are the things that we're all okay with, whether it's a one-time payment and so that's why it's okay, but there's still upkeep or, you know, where where is that line? Who decided that these are the things that are here that we accept as, you know, common commodity and, and these are not? But mm. I think it's uh, something that's it's worth thinking about for sure. So I appreciate that perspective. I Even myself didn't yeah. even think about it like that. So what is something you think you and I have in common? I'm going to share something that like in some ways like that, that I think about you that I'm not sure that we have in common but mm-hmm. I'm going to like so I think that we both deeply care about like helping people that are suffering and I think the the difference is that I think I'm a little bit more public facing in how I do that right mm-hmm. through my social work career um I just, through how I use Facebook, and one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that I think a lot of your work is done, like, surreptitiously. I don't know. Do you identify as Jewish? I'm actually, I'm Italian, actually. Yeah. That's so funny. The dark curly hair. It's like, it it gets people every time. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And you know, Leanna is, or Leanna is like a common kind of Jewish name too. Mm -hmm. Um, So in Judaism, there's this idea of um, tzedakah, of like giving. And there, and I don't remember them now. I learned this in Sunday school, (laughs) but there's like different levels of tzedakah, of like what the... You know, and so I think the highest level is like that you're anonymously giving and you don't even know where it's going. But high up there is this fact that you're not like you're doing your giving like really privately. And so that's something that I really admire about you. So like, for example, a friend was looking for some um, sleeping bags for Mm -hmm. folks who were like living on the streets and just needed um, and needed some sleeping bags and like. I think, I don't think, I so I posted about it and you didn't reply, reply publicly, but you kind of like privately messaged me. And I know, you know, I don't know a ton about your mm. your family, but I imagine, you know, having kids come through the foster care system and like suddenly going from no children to like having, what is it, four daughters? Um, like what that would have been like and that, you know, again, maybe this is me putting on you, but I imagine that part of it is because you really want to like lessen the the suffering that is in the world. And like, if I was one of those four girls, like what it would be like to like have this fear of like being separated and what that would be like. So I think, um, I think that's something that, that we, we share is like constantly thinking about like, are there ways that we can reduce suffering in this mm-hmm. world, even through small or, or very large acts? Hmm. Well, I'd say that's an honor to share that with you for sure. It's something I see very prevalent in your life and is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on just to share uh, your heart for others and your, your willingness to put action behind that heart. I think mm. it's quick and easy for so many of us to say, I care. Mm. But then to say, okay, what are the steps that go in place after that? And and that's something I do see in you. I think that's that's it is. It's an honor to share that with you. And and I would agree with that. I do I do care um, for others, and I do feel like there is a lot of suffering in this world. And if we can do anything to lessen it, why shouldn't we? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that for sure. Yeah. I mean, then there's like the more obvious, like we're both into fitness <laughs> and traveling, but those yeah. seem yeah. like the more the surface fun. level. Yeah aspects of things all good things for sure yeah (laughs) definitely 
Uh, what would you say makes you feel known and valued? Well, so I will say like part of, I think sometimes what makes me feel known or historically what has made me feel known or valued was like being a fighter. Mm -hmm. And it never felt great because it was always like, this is a time limited thing. It felt like this is like one aspect of my identity. I was in a PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania, like working my ass off. Like my doing my dissertation was one of the hardest things I've ever encountered in my life. And and I remember like being in my PhD program and like, you know, I guess just because it's more common to have people in a PhD program than it is to see a, a woman fighting. But like nobody ever cared about that. It was like all people ever wanted to talk about was like me being a female fighter. And then it, it felt like that was like so wrapped up into my identity. And then especially like it's taken me, I haven't fought. Um, one of the things about fighting is that it's very tied into like weight classes and maintaining a certain weight. And a lot of times what women have to do to maintain that weight is like engage in unhealthy behaviors or have your weight at perhaps a lower you know, body fat than would be healthy to walk around at. And so when I first started trying to get pregnant, you know, the fertility clinic was basically, because I had some trouble, they were like, you know, you can't, it's not worth the risks to your like menstrual cycle if you do this like dieting. So it's been um, like a good five or six years since I fought, but I would say up until like a year ago or so, like I still maintain this idea that I was a fighter because so much of my identity and like also what, like to be honest, I think was like the thing that other people like valued in me was this identity of being a, a female fighter. Which, you know, I think everybody's well-intentioned in, in that value. Of course, there's, some, there's a part of it that I loved about that identity, too. But, yeah, it was just like a, a piece of me. And now I think, I think like what my partner and my parents and my children value is I, I think I, I hope I'm trying to constantly like center other people's needs and in kind of how I approach things. So always thinking about like, how is this going to like impact my partner? How's this gonna impact my kids? Or like, how do I, what can I do to like be helpful towards my parents? Um, so I think for the people that are closest, like that's the part of me that hopefully is most valued. Yeah, I think it's, it's so funny. It's like people often see something that's different in somebody else. Mm and they pull from that. And I think often it's it's not meant as a negative, like you're saying, like it's meant as like, oh, I, I value this in you because I think it's different, it's exciting, it's yeah. unique, it's something I maybe am afraid of trying myself or it's something yeah. that I don't feel is possible for most people that that I, I see you and I feel like we align in some way. And so it's almost like I could see myself doing that through you and so I value that and I wanna bring that up, but it's like, just because somebody else sees that often in us. It's not the thing we see in ourselves. It's not the thing we value most. Yeah. And so. Like I could imagine again for you, like because you, you get to travel so much and like that's exciting, like that people could like see and um, almost think of you in this, what's the term we use all the time in social work? Like, um, like one dimensional way of like that all your life is about is like travel, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the thing you can see on social mm -hmm. media. That's mm -hmm. the thing that's really different, especially if you're going to kind of like some more places that other people don't get to travel to. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, 
80 to 90% of your time is spent at home with your family or doing these other things that are mm-hmm. also probably big parts of your mm-hmm. identity that just yeah. that people don't like that aren't like that people don't focus in on yeah no absolutely so I think that's pretty common for a lot of us that yeah people pull something that that they see and they mm. value and they're intrigued by yeah but less about like sitting down and getting to know like well what do you actually value well, who are yeah. you actually yeah so, yeah uh where do you call home and what makes it home to you Philadelphia. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is that I like love about the city. I've always loved the city. I grew up in Cheltenham, like two blocks outside of the city, and I was just always like obsessed with coming into the city and it just made me so happy to like take the train into the city when I got to be a teenager and then I went to undergrad in Boston and all I ever wanted to do was like come back to Philly. And I'm okay with like at this point in my life maybe moving outside of Philly, but I think like this area and like staying connected to Philly feels very much like my home. Yeah. It's quite a it's quite a city and I feel like people who are Philly people are are proud of that mm-hmm. and there's community there. There's a, like a rich connection there. Yeah. So if for nothing else than our sports teams. <laughs> yeah. What is something you wish you didn't struggle with? I wish I knew how to be more assertive. Mm-hmm. I wish I didn't struggle with that. Like I know I know most of my interactions are like very kind of like accommodating passive kind of like trying to keep everybody happy I know how to do that and I know how to be aggressive and I know how to really like come at people Mm -hmm. but I struggle with removing that anger and the impulsivity and like being able to really like state my needs or what my feelings are in a way that doesn't bring up a lot of anger or doesn't bring up uh, because I have social anxiety like a lot of social anxiety around like how is someone going to be perceiving what I've said mm-hmm. then that's mm-hmm. one of my my biggest things that I struggle with that I wish I could figure out a way to be different just like the aspect of here's where I am here and here's where I am here but it's like that middle like how to bring that middle ground in it's yeah I, I go back and forth about whether I don't want to like whether I'm just accepted it or not, but I am somebody that doesn't know how to live in moderation. I mm. only know extremes. Mm. And like, I've kind of just accepted that and that's just like who I am and I see strength in it. Mm. Um, but there are certain aspects of that that I think, like yeah. I do wish I understood a little bit of moderation. <laughs> it's something we can always grow in. Well, but yeah, I feel like often our, our weaknesses and our strengths are like so connected. Yep. The thing that makes us the most strong can also make us the most yeah. weak. So what is something you used to struggle with but don't anymore? I think I used to, I used to struggle a lot more with my depression. Hmm. Um, and meds have been a miracle for hmm. me. You know, I don't think that everybody who has depression like needs or benefits from medication. But I also think for people like me, it's like life-changing. And I wish there wasn't so much stigma around it or ideas of like that it's not natural Mm. um when when i first went on meds maybe 20 years ago i was through a a primary care doctor and he was like oh maybe you just like need it for a year and i like did it for a year and i got off and i was like kind of fine Uh, but then i continued to struggle because i just had depression my whole life and then finally when i saw a psychiatrist about 10 years later she was like oh you know actually you needed to be on that for like two years mm. because now if you're only I forget it was something like if you're only on it for a year actually there's this likelihood of remission and then the medication may not work so I think like 
also a lot of people get their meds through their primary care doctor, which I get because it's very difficult to get into psychiatrists, they're expensive, but primary care doctors aren't necessarily experts in like mental health medication. Um, so when I first started seeing the psychiatrist, I think I did have an idea initially that it would be time limited, but I realized after a few years, like, I don't, I don't want to get off this medication because I'm just a different person. And I think hmm. Certainly not everyone with depression will relate to this, but I think a lot of us, it's, it's there's a, a misperception that like antidepressants make you like this super happy person. And for me, what it did was it really, the main thing it did was it took away my thoughts of suicide. And mm. I don't understand how meds do this, but mm. I've just had constant thoughts of suicide before mm. I became stable on meds. And the medication really helped me. It's not that I've, I never think of suicide. It's just very rare and it's fleeting. And mm. and I think what what meds have helped me to do is to just experience like what I think other people without depression experiences as like the normal highs and lows of life where it's not so low that it's just mm -hmm. absolutely debilitating. So you know, it's, and it's, I'm not saying that I won't ever struggle with it again. My parents are getting older, their deaths, which have scared me throughout my whole life. Like that's coming. There's other things mm -hmm. I probably can't anticipate that are coming that mm -hmm. could trigger my depression to get worse, but I feel so much better on, um, on, on medication. Hmm. I mean, and those things that you describe at the end, there are things that every single one of us, whether we struggle with depression or not, we'll have to deal with. Yeah. There are things that will weigh heavy on us. There are things that will impact us and we don't know how they're going to impact any of us. Yeah. But what you share in that so vulnerably and so openly, which I really appreciate is that, yeah, some of us need that. And that's, that's important. It's important to get the right diagnosis. It's important to not feel stigma around that conversation. It's important to know that you're not the only one experiencing those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we go in with uh, diabetes or any other physical condition that is impacted by our hormones, a thyroid condition, anything else. And, and we take medication for that because that's what our body has a deficiency in. We're not perfect. Right. Our bodies are not a perfect hormonal balance of everything. And so it's, I'm, I'm grateful that in so many areas, our culture and our society are starting to realize that that is a little bit more common. It's a little healthier conversation around meds for whatever they're needed, whether it's yeah. mental, physical, hormonal, or anything. And, and I'm grateful that you're able to get the help that you needed and live the life that you're yeah. able to. Yeah, so. I think it's, it's sad for me sometimes when I see people who... <laughs> are struggling and are just opposed to medication. And again, like, I don't think it's for everyone. I think there's a lot of different, really cool ways that you can handle depression, but it also like, it, it feels silly to me that that's just like not a possibility hmm. for people. And again, there's side effects. There's, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's not that I don't understand some of the hesitancy, but I do think for some people, if they would be willing to try it, it can really change your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're also speaking from your own experience. Yeah. And this is like when something works for us, we share that. We right. say, this was really effective for me. I don't know if it will be for you, but try it. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a valuable thing for people to hear for sure. Yeah, definitely. 
What is something you are confident in helping someone else through or with? One thing I actually was realizing that I didn't like introduce myself with, <laughs> but has been like an identity that I've been thinking a lot about a lot more lately is part of this international network of motivational interviewing trainers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so motivational interviewing is like an evidence-based practice that's used in lots of different types of healthcare. And it's it's like got a terrible name. It's like a real misnomer, <laughs> I think, because like I feel like it makes me sound like I'm going to be like this cheerleader. But really what motivational interviewing is, is this idea of like helping people think about where they are and where they want to be and how you evoke their own unique reasons or their unique barriers or what their thoughts are on where they want to kind of go with that. So I, I think for a lot of different behaviors, because I understand motivational interviewing and because it works across so many things um i think there's a lot of things that i feel like pretty confident in helping people with because i think a lot of times people have the answers to things and they just haven't like had the space to sit and really think about it or they haven't their perspectives and expertise hasn't been valued and so i think that's the trick for a lot of things is that like we could all really help a lot more people if we were focused more on like listening of providing them with space to like think through their own issues of helping them recognize their past ways that they've succeeded giving them non-judgmental space to like work through what their real barriers are and like helping them to think about creative ways to addressing those um those barriers so certainly i can't help everybody with everything but i think having that background in motivational interviewing and training other people in motivational interviewing really makes me feel confident in helping people with a lot of different a lot of different issues they might have yeah that's awesome I feel like that's it's a new term I didn't know that one but yeah you're right it does make you sound like this like oh it's a super exciting cheerleader but like in a way it is it's like it's also a name that gives somebody coming into that space feel like oh this person is for me Mm. they're here to encourage me yeah so maybe it allows them to come into that space a little bit more openly and a little less afraid Maybe but I don't maybe. know, but yeah, we could also. I, just, I, I wish maybe there was it could a be renamed. Really, <laughs> yeah, it's really just about evoking people's own motivations. It's yeah. it's it's changed my life, like being involved in it, because it just it's changed not only like how I approach like work with clients, but I think it's changed how I think about like human interactions as mm-hmm. well, like just my day to day interactions with people. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. If I were to give you ten thousand dollars and you have to spend it down to zero in two weeks, you can't give it away. Okay. What are you doing with it? Probably taking my family on a cool trip. Traveling becomes so much more expensive when you have a family. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Um, And we haven't gotten time to like really go on like a cool vacation together. Mm -hmm. And so I think you can like $10,000 seems like a lot, but could go really quickly. Like if we all went to like... Atlantis or Mm -hmm. some kind of cool all-inclusive resort that would have like water slides for the kids and just time for us to be together. That's Mm -hmm. probably what I would do. That's awesome. Is there anything you wish you could say to somebody you love, but maybe they aren't in a place that they would hear it or receive it right now? I, I mean, I will say in general, I'm very lucky that I feel like I have really open relationships with a lot of people. And I think I... 
It's got me in trouble at work recently, but <laughs> I, I really try to be someone where if I'm going to say something to someone else about somebody, I would say it to their face, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of funny going along with my struggles with being assertive. But <laughs> I, I think I'm generally really open and honest with most people. Yeah, I guess I, the main thing is I guess I have one family member who's really um, struggling, whose health has really, um, like gotten worse over the last year or two um and and they've stopped kind of walking or doing other things that they were doing to help their health and it's gotten into this cycle of where they think it's something else and they're afraid to like be move around too much but like I think I would just be a little bit more direct Mm. about the fact that like that so much of this is your anxiety and your depression and if you Mm. could just like you would actually feel so much better physically if you could push yourself and not I'm not talking about like going to CrossFit but like even if you just walked around the block a Mm. few more times like then I really think it would it would do wonders both for your mental and physical health. Is there anything that would be hard for you to hear about yourself from somebody you love? Oh gosh! Talking about somebody with social anxiety disorder, everything is hard for me here. Yeah, every criticism is really hard. I'm not Mm. good at taking criticism. I have to Mm. say, I always like to like come up with the criticism myself. So I think anytime like I can see a criticism, then I'm much better at taking it. But if people Mm. pick up on things that like I don't see in myself, I think that's always really hard to 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 take. So yeah, I'm, and I'll be honest, yeah, like really any criticism from anybody is hard. <laughs> it's not fun for any of us. None of us like hearing that there's something about us that's undesirable or unlikable in somebody that someone else sees in us. Yeah. It's unpleasant, but it's, yeah. I think once we get past that initial like, ugh, then it's like, okay, yeah, I value that person. I value what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to change, but it doesn't make it fun or easier or pleasant. What would you say makes you feel at peace? Yeah, I'm going to go back to that same comment of like laying in bed with my, my mm. daughters at night, just cuddling with them. Is there anything that you wish you could say to the opposite sex if they would hear it, uh, regardless of you being a woman or regardless of society or culture? If there's anything that you could say to men that you were like, if they heard it, they would hear it and receive it well? I, I think I know what you're saying. And <laughs> She's like, I don't know how to phrase that, sorry. Well, no, I'm just thinking about like the term the opposite sex because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think I've become, um, I've been thinking a lot about like gender more recently. I have a friend, a good friend who's non-binary and I think I always, I'm realizing more and more even though I'm very conscious of it, the more I am engaging in microaggressions or like screwing up myself. So I feel mm-hmm. like in honor of them, I want to just say like, I don't, I guess I don't know if, I don't, like I don't know if I, want to answer that question I don't know if I think about men as like the the Mm. opposite sex but I'll just say like because I think opposite makes us think of like like that there's two as opposed to gender kind of being along this spectrum but I guess um if I'm thinking about like cisgender men I guess one of the main things I would say is like feminism isn't about like hating men I think Mm. particularly my my partner, I will go on record for saying this, has like a really negative, it's very interesting how he holds it, like this very negative perception of like what feminists are, but also like sees that I'm a feminist. And so I think like, yeah, I think that's the main thing is like feminism is not about 
hating cisgender men. It's about just pushing society to recognize the ways and the structural ways in which women still aren't on the same playing field. You know, certainly cisgender women aren't, but like trans, non-binary people, like all those folks just aren't on the same playing field as cisgender men. And it doesn't take away from the fact that you could be really hardworking to have gotten to the place where you are, but there's just privilege that goes along with um, being a cisgender Mm -hmm. man. Yeah, and and Johannes is a wonderful human, kind-hearted, and one of the sweetest people I've ever met. So... Yeah, we'll give him we'll give him some credit in that and I know he values you yeah. very deeply, loves you very deeply and cares for you very deeply. And it, it's I think it's so interesting in that that it's almost like saying, "Oh, I don't I don't value feminists this way, but I know you, so you're different." And you yeah. hear that phrase so often with certain people. I'm not saying him, just people in general yeah. where they say like, "Oh, I don't like those type of people, but I know you." And it's like, "But I am one of those people." Yeah. And it's like, "But I think so often we're just unable to put a face with a term, right. put a person with a term. And, and when we are able to do that, we're able to say, oh, it, you're right. It's not all about hating men. Yeah. It's about saying like, I just want to be valued too. Yes. I just want to be. Yeah. And it's also, and I, I think also like being a feminist, also, I, I also recognize there are certain ways in which it's, I, I think overall the balance is that women are not ahead structurally, but like there are ways you know for example like who are the majority of like violence victims here in philadelphia it's men who are the majority of people that are locked up in our prison it's men so it's not saying that i don't recognize that in certain contexts that that men are more disadvantaged i guess i just i guess i just always want people to like have be able to have like nuanced conversations but i think sometimes like certain terms like just shut people down and don't allow them to like even be able to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I almost wish there was another because feminism is such a loaded term. Like I wish there was a different. We'll reinvent something for that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I definitely can agree with you on that. It is. It's like there's certain terms that people have put so in a box that now we can't have a conversation anymore because we hear a word and we all shut down. Yeah. So, all right. That's your new assignment is to redefine feminism. Oh my gosh. That works. Alrighty. So if you were to have a large audience before you, and if public speaking makes you as nervous as it makes me, we'll just shut that part off. But if you were to have a large group of people before you and you were to share uh, some wisdom or a life lesson or something you'd want them to take with them, what would you share? I guess I would share something I haven't talked about is that um, my most recent research, something that I'm trying to work on finally getting published this week was a a research study on Philadelphia had smoking ban on inpatient treatment facilities for a drug uh, drug and alcohol that was enacted in 2019 and you know on some level like it's understandable most hospitals you can't smoke the you know there's some research it's not as strong as the the city's public health department is portraying but there's some data saying that perhaps your long-term sobriety could be impacted by continuing to smoke cigarettes, right? There's concerns around secondhand smoking. I get all of that. And we're in the midst of an overdose crisis that's only been made worse by COVID. And so there's been people for like, people in recovery, people that are using drugs, outpatient providers that are saying, not allowing people to smoke is serving as a barrier to going into treatment. And they said that from the beginning, 
There's been anecdotes of people saying they didn't want to go on because of the smoking ban and then overdosing or leaving treatment early because of the of wanting to smoke and then ending up back in jail or overdosing. And so I did a research study and it was a small sample, 112 people, but really showing that for a, a portion of the population of people who are smoking and using drugs, the cigarettes are a deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, for going into treatment and for the folks in our study of those that left treatment early 85% of them said it was in part because of this mm. smoking ban and I guess I would just and one of the things that I think that I learned through this is that one of the reasons the city continued to have this policy in place despite my research despite what I think they had some evidence on their own of even prior to my research and us going public with it is that they knew that people were being deterred and yet there was research money going into studying smoking cessation, millions of research dollars going into it. And so there was this investment in continuing to, in, in continuing to like have this program that they knew was keeping people out of treatment, even in an overdose crisis. And I guess, I was aware of this issue from a former student of mine, Brooke Feldman, um, and Brooke and I kind of partnered on this research along with a group called Angels in Motion, which runs a syringe exchange here in Philadelphia. And through this process, Brooke became so re-traumatized that um, she essentially, her mental health decompensated severely, and she's very public about this. And and she over the last few months has been really trying to call attention to this issue and like because of what she's saying the city has called the the police to do a wellness check on her you know perhaps out of concern but perhaps also out of like not wanting her to be a whistleblower about the fact that the city was continuing to do to continuing with the smoking ban despite the fact of having some research that it was deterring people from treatment so i guess I would want to let people know about about Brooke's name and kind of what she's been going through in order to like make all of this public, to make this smoking ban issue, like to even put it on the radar. And yeah, so I would just want people to know about her. She's she's yeah. this person who was in the first cohort of students um, at Westchester University at the Philadelphia campus. And she came being recommended by like the commissioner of the behavioral health system. She was like our rock star student speaker. She went to the University of Pennsylvania for um, her master's, was the class speaker there. She's somebody who's always been like the poster child of somebody in recovery and has like just been put into leadership roles no matter where she's gone and has had so many people going to her to you know for advice around different policies and now that that she really needs people's help um she's not getting the support that she needs i think because people are afraid of maybe what will happen to them if they come out and speak too much Mm -hmm. on the fact that this policy was so tied into research money Mm -hmm. so i would want to just send some love out to Brooke and let her know that I will always continue to support her. And I have faith that, Mm. I don't know, I'm hoping, I'm I'm hoping that once this research gets published, other cities will also kind of think about this issue. And also like, 
take the opinions of people who are drug users or even like service providers, like more seriously when you're developing policies. Like you can just, you can look at all the research you want. I'm a researcher myself. I think research has value, but if you don't listen to the people in your area, they're gonna be directly impacted by policies. You're gonna have these unintended consequences. Mm. So I don't know. Sorry, there's no, like a, no, a lot please. there that I want people to think about, but it's something kind of on my mind because I've just seen Brooke really suffer yeah. these last few months. Yeah. yeah. It's not ever a good thing we want to see when someone who's put their heart and soul behind something, something they value to feel the weight of it because yeah. someone may be benefiting in a different way. But yeah, and you're right. There is something in there that's like, it's easy for someone not in a situation to be like, well, smoking is bad for you. Like, of course it's bad. No one's disagreeing with that. But to say like, all right, well, let's maybe do what we need to do to help get them to a place that's like better first. Yes. And then, then we worry about that thing because if you never get them off whatever this is, then the smoking is kind of irrelevant. Yep. That's not going to be what kills them. It's going to be something else. And and yeah, that doesn't answer the question of secondhand and those that are caring. And it yeah. is it is a lot. But I think it's a really valuable point to bring up. Yeah, and and, and the smoking is outdoors. There's you know mm-hmm. I think there's ways to like minimize yeah. some of those of course yeah risks. Um, and to like, yeah, I think historically there wasn't a lot of smoking treatment that was offered towards people. So like having more smoking cessation treatment available when people are ready, I think it's wonderful, but I don't know why, like, again, like, I don't know why we have these, like the city or just the, it's not even the city. It's just like our social service systems, like puts out these values of like meeting people where they are and seeing themselves as experts in their situation. And yet we develop these policies of like, we know what's best for you. What is something you wish people knew about your culture? I don't know that I feel like super tied into a culture. Certainly not like an ethnic culture. I guess like the most culture that I belong to is like a fitness culture of like my Muay Thai community, even the CrossFit Mm. community. So I guess within that, just things that on the surface can seem like cult-like or can seem like people are fanatics about. Like, I think it can be annoying from the outside, but I also just see the ways in which that support is crucial for people. Like for myself, like I never felt like I was part of the community until I started doing Muay Thai. Mm. Um, But even in my CrossFit gym, like I, you know, it's like a, a place I go to socialize. Like I've gotten resources for different things from people at the gym if it's if it's your jam like if you right like if you're like if fitness isn't your thing like I get that I don't think that everybody has to find their community that way but I think there's really powerful ways in which um fitness communities can be like so important for people's overall well-being Mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely for sure uh is there anything that you are not proud of with your culture Oh, God. Well, <laughs> I'm very ambivalent about even being associated with the um, the CrossFit community. I think, and I'm going to like alienate some of your listeners with this, but I think like, <laughs> for, like CrossFit sometimes valorizes like the police and military in ways that I wish they were like a little bit more critical and thinking about. I think this push to like go faster, go harder is what kind of can contribute to injuries or... I think CrossFit also embodies what we talk call like disability porn. So they have these things where 
it's like somebody's in a wheelchair and they're like, if they can do it, like, then, then why can't you? Which like totally invalidates the wide range of reasons why somebody can't or doesn't want to do things. But also like a lot of their portrayals of people with disabilities is like, you know, making things out to be so special. Like, oh, we wouldn't expect that somebody with a disability could do this stuff. Well, of course people with disabilities can do a range of things. And also some people with those very same disabilities like can't do some of that stuff. And like, I don't wanna be part of a group that makes people feel shitty because somebody else who looks like them or has similar conditions like can't do the same things. And then within Muay Thai, you know, I think um, it's still like this super like dominated by like cis men um i wish there was like more women involved in you know, there's more women fighters but i wish there was more women coaches and refs and judges and just in overall leadership within muay thai um there's an idea of like what they call green lighting which i think is really problematic of like if somebody goes too hard or they're like beating up on other people instead of talking to them about it like you beat them up and so and it's this idea like nobody's going to learn unless that happens. But a lot of times people don't realize what they're doing or even if they do, like it feels like there's got to be a better way for that, especially because I've seen it be I've seen like abusers or other people like really harm people under this green lighting idea of like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. So like a coach that was date has done that to like women that he's dated of like, I'm the coach and I'm going to teach you a lesson and like beat you up where like yeah in Muay Thai you can like kind of beat people up and it's to some extent consensual so it covers up like what essentially is domestic violence and you know in other ways in which people can really take advantage of like hurting people under this guideline like this umbrella of like teaching people a lesson mm -hmm. so that's something that I'm not so proud mm -hmm. of and I wish could change in Muay Thai yeah it's almost like this false sense of like I'm defending the little guy and it's like but are you or are you just afraid of having a conversation right right so. or like what makes you the moral high ground um, yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely hmm. what is something that you love about your culture hmm like I said I think I love the community I love the way that it, you know, the flip side, I think of this, like pushing people to their limits and that it can result in injury is that it does help people sometimes realize that there are things that they can kind of like push. Hmm. Sometimes you can accomplish more than you recognize. But yeah, I think it's the community that hmm. I love the most. And I feel like all of us need that and are have that within us to need to be a part of community and to be a part of something. and. And I think it is, it's, it's often people find such a rich community within a sport mm -hmm. or within an athletic area because it is, it's such a, an ingrained passion that they have as well. So it's a little easier to find community in, in, a, in an interest like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. but do you feel like you know what your purpose is in life? I think I do. I think I've been really lucky to like, and I think it's, it's such a privilege to like have a career mm -hmm. where you get paid to like teach and think and work around trying to like lessen human suffering at the same time holding that like my career of social work has also hurt people too so mm -hmm. I want to like hold that complexity but yeah so I think like as much as I can trying to do what I can to make others like just have a better quality of life I, I feel like that's my my purpose as well as trying to like have some fun adventures but I did most of that before having kids now <laughs> now there's less of that <laughs> It'll come back around as they get a little yeah. older. You'll be good. <laughs>
Uh, so I know you have a few, but do you have a favorite tattoo and why? I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, I love, I, I'm very obsessed with the movie Labyrinth. So I have like a labyrinth um, half sleeve that is probably my um, my favorite because that movie is just like, I've loved it ever since I was a little kid and I had like a labyrinth birthday party. And I've, my dog is named after a labyrinth character. My kids are named after labyrinth characters or one <laughs> of them is. So I love my, my labyrinth tattoo because that's a big part of like hmm. who I am. That's cool. I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen that. So I'm going to go add that to a list and watch yeah, it. Then. <laughs> sure. If it holds up, I think people who didn't see it as kids are kind of like, it's a weird okay. movie. <laughs> okay. So I'm not like pushing seeing it. But, Alrighty. Well, um, it'll allow me to understand a little bit more of your childhood. Yes. So we'll take it. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is something you have accomplished that you are proud of? I'm, I think I'm, like, I'm really proud of being in a relationship for almost eight years. Mm. I think I'm somebody who... Like when things get hard and Johannes will attest to this, like I want to just like bail. And so I think like being able to maintain this relationship and in large part, it's due to Johannes and Johannes like teaching me how to be in a relationship and like stay in a relationship and work through tough feelings together. So even though that's like small and not something, I don't know, you know, yeah, like I have PhD and I have my fighting and stuff like that, but I think the thing that's been like the hardest or like taking the most work is like figuring out how to like be committed to a long-term relationship. It really aligns with like what you value and what you pour your life into is people and wanting them to be okay and wanting to help those who are struggling and wanting to give your life for that to also then say like, this is something I'm really proud of that I've been able to mm. allow someone to know me, yeah. to choose to know that person and to, and to work through the hard things and to yeah. stay with them. So I think that is, it's a, it's something I think we can all be really proud of when we're able to stay in close connection with another human being because it requires a lot of us Yeah, and it requires a lot of them. So I think that's, it's worth being proud of for sure. All right. So you have quite a few talents here, but if we were to have, ask you for three talents that you wish you had that you don't have, Mm. what would they be? I wish I was more like artistic, including like playing musical instruments or being able to like draw. I'm not awful at math, but I'm not great at it. I wish I was a little bit better at math. Like I wish I was better at the use of statistics. Oh, I know. I wish I I, like knew how to organize stuff. Like I don't know how to organize things. That would be like a really great talent. Like I really like, I'm so in awe of like those people that have like those organizing businesses and you like look at how they transform an area. That would be an amazing talent. Well, we'll keep those people employed, I guess, (laughs) until then. I appreciate your so much, your time and just sitting down with me and sharing so much and giving people a chance to hear who you are. But is there anything else you want people to know about who you are or what matters to you? I guess I was reminded of this this weekend. I was at the Pet Expo. Um, I think like along with human suffering, I'm really concerned about animal suffering and I'm trying to move back towards my vegan diet because I'm very concerned, not about the ways in which we like I don't know we worry about certain animals more than others and like but even within like cats and dogs you know I think about like homeless animals and the way that like we have two pit bulls the way that pit bulls get mistreated and yeah I guess I just wish I'm I think this is a, a shortfall of of white folks sometimes we can talk about animals and, and get more upset about things that happens with animals mm. more so than like the lives of 
um, of black individuals. So I want to like put that caveat in there. I'm not elevating animals to the level of humans, but I do wish that people and not like on a like, you know, outrage over one specific thing, but I wish on a more regular basis, they thought more about animals in this world and like how it's, I almost had to move away from animal rights because the suffering was like overwhelming to me. But I, so I wish people would, I guess, not be like me and like <laughs> not turn away from it so much or think about it more and kind of how they live their daily lives. Yeah. Um, sorry, I guess that was more about what no. they knew about me than what I wish for other no. people. But that, um, that I think thinking about, animals and animal welfare is another big part of kind of who I am and yeah thank yeah. you for I don't know having some interest in me for anybody who's actually listening to no this. yeah no I so appreciate your time and your choice to just sit down and be super open and share who you are and your perspective and I think there's so much that people can learn um, and appreciate and connect with in what you've shared about who you are so thank you and thank you so much for your time okay thank you Thank you for tuning in to This World My View. Your reviews are what keep this show going. So if you have a moment, I would so appreciate you just taking a second to write a review. Anything from, I really enjoyed this, or something you took away that changed your perspective or impacted your life, or something you connected with. If you have a chance to share that on social media and tag me and the show in it, I would greatly appreciate that. I just want to thank you also for just being a part of my world and community here at This World My View.